Well, hello, Grace. My name is uh, Rick Matson, and uh, we love our church. My wife and I have been here for, uh, I think, 23 years now. And I started off in the music program, and then in recent years have gotten uh, more into uh, teaching here at the church. Uh, I grew up in the church, but my church experience, I just wasn't paying attention. Uh, the gospel was there. The people were there. The Holy Spirit was there. I was only maybe a quarter there. And it wasn't really until I went off to college and had some uh, tough times in my life, I think some real emptiness in my life uh, from playing music around the country, that I came back to Marshall, Minnesota. That's where I grew up and uh, accepted Christ there through the, uh, through the influence and sharing of some friends. And ever since then, I just feel like I've been committed to the church. And I want to talk with you today about the nature of the church and why we should love the church. But before we do that, let's uh, pray together. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this place. Thank you for Grace Church, Lord, which has been home for Sharon and me for 23 years. Lord, we have so many good memories here. So many good things have happened here. And we uh, credit the power of your spirit working through the body of Christ. And Lord, we also think of it as an imperfect church. We know that. And yet, Lord, uh, you love the church. And uh, just pray you be with us this weekend as we worship you together and hear the word of God. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as much as I appreciate and love the church, uh, there's a lot of opposition to the church out there these days. I work in college campus ministry. And on college campuses, people, they have strong feelings about the church. Sometimes it's the historic church. Sometimes it's uh, colonialism. Sometimes it's the Crusades or the Salem witch hunts. There's a variety of historical reasons that people have ill will toward the church. And sometimes it's a contemporary church. The church takes certain moral stands and social stands that uh, people are opposed to in our culture. And so they then oppose the church or they had a bad experience in the church. Now that I can really sympathize with. We are an imperfect institution. Sometimes people say the wrong thing or it's taken wrong <laughs> and people have church hurt and they're out there and sometimes uh, kind of falling into bad mouthing the church. Well, that's certainly true on college campuses. And looking back in the history of the church, it's a checkered history. There have been problems in the church. There have been times when the church has caused harm. I'm not proud of those, but I do want to acknowledge them. Let me just give you one example of a story from the church's history that didn't turn out too well and kind of gives the church a, uh, a bad reputation. There's a man, his name is John Huss. Huss lived right around the time period of uh, 1400 AD. And Huss was a professor and a preacher in uh, Bohemia. Think modern Czech Republic. And it was called Bohemia at the time. And Huss was a, a devotee, a follower. He was influenced by a man named John Wycliffe. Now, Wycliffe was a famous figure of the time period. He is a reformer. He was a man who was very critical of the Roman Catholic Church at the time and the way the clergy were handling the institution, and uh, especially this idea of indulgences. And if you're not familiar with indulgences, uh, what it was is that uh, people could buy their way into heaven that, to, to reduce it, to summarize it quickly. You can buy your way into heaven. So if a relative died, they would go to purgatory 
to be purged of their sins. But you could speed them through purgatory if you made a contribution to the church. And so there's this kind of silly saying that says, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, the Catholic Church ended up taking undue advantage of people collecting these fees. Uh, these, and then they would uh, issue letters of indulgence, in other words, letters of pardon, and people could then get out of purgatory and go to heaven. A corrupt system. Everyone admits that. And so Wycliffe was very critical of that, and Huss was influenced by Wycliffe, and Huss, in his role as a university professor at the University of Prague and as a preacher, here in the area of Prague. Uh, he too became a critic of the Catholic Church. Well, at some point, he was called to account for his criticism of the church. He was called to the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance was the 16th ecumenical council of the, of the church, and it was held in Germany. And there was some intrigue behind the scenes, a pope had been, a new pope had been bribed by an archbishop to stand against these uh, people like Huss who were in opposition to the Catholic Church. So Huss was called into the Council of Constance and he was tried for opposing the church and he was executed. He was executed for standing against the church. In fact, he was burned at the stake. Now in the world where I live, the university world. Those are the kinds of stories that just set people off. And I think there's something to that. I mean, I think that's partly justified. But guess what, folks? The church is filled. 90% of the church's history is filled with good things. The 10% that were rotten, that were bad, where the church caused harm, uh, that's what really gets the press. And that's what people notice, and that's what people remember, and then they stand against the church. I support the church for many reasons, and I'm going to get to the main reason in a second, but a more minor reason are this. Uh, the church in the West is what developed health care in the global West. Uh, and where did health care come from in the global West? It came from Christians in the Roman Empire who took care of sick people that the Romans were unwilling to take care of. The Romans valued strength. They took care of their warriors, but they didn't take care of lay people who were sick, but the Christians did. They went out into the community, went out into the streets, and they brought people into their homes, often at their own risk, as they could contract some of the diseases that the people had. And then that developed into healthcare uh, through the monasteries in Europe and in Egypt. And today, we have the systems of health care here in the West that we do here in America, for sure, because of St. Joseph's and St. Jude's and St. Mary's and St. This and St. That. It all came from Christians in the Roman Empire coming down through the centuries. And the church is responsible for that. A lot of people don't remember that as part of the history of the church. I also support the church because of its role in education. So if you look back to the founding of the major schools, here in the US, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, who founded these institutions? It was Christians. Christians who believed in public education for the common good. Or how did science develop in the West? The early scientists, the pioneers of Western science and now global science were Kepler and Newton and Galileo 
and others. And they developed science because they believed that the universe had been created by God, an orderly God created an orderly universe. Science then was going to be the tool by which we study an orderly universe. And yes, it did get off to a bit of a rocky start at times. There were controversies within the church about what science would be. Nevertheless, it was the Christian worldview that developed science. And even service here that we provide at Grace Church and many other churches in our community and across the country, uh, there's food shelves and there's feeding kids and there's free marriage counseling and a whole variety of services that our church and a bunch of Christian social service agencies provide. So you think of Habitat for Humanity. You know, a few years ago, they reached the 500,000th, half millionth home that they built for underprivileged people. And other organizations such as the International Justice Mission, uh, World Vision, there's a zillion of them out there doing good deeds in the name of Christ. Those are some reasons to support the church, but I mentioned an even greater reason to support the church. I support the church because Christ does. Christ loves the church. And I wanna to get to our first scripture today and it's Ephesians taken from Ephesians 5, and it says, Husbands, love your wives. Okay, he's talking about the marriage here between a man and a wife, and then he goes into the analogy of Christ and the church. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Folks, I want to love what Christ loves, and I hope you do as well. Is the heart of Jesus what's on your heart? Is the heart of God what's on your heart? Do you want to love the things that God loves? Well, love the church because Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. So love the church because the church is the bride of Christ. Think of that analogy. That God loves grace church and God loves all the churches. He loves the church as his own Bride. Now, I happen to be a married man. I'm married to Sharon, and I love Sharon. I have deep feelings and deep commitment for my wife. And imagine if you can maximize that and make that into an infinite love that Christ has for the church. And I want to emulate that, and I want you to as well. I want you to love the church because Christ loves the church. Well, college students, graduate students, faculty have plenty of objections to the church. I touched on it just for a moment before, but uh, one of my jobs in uh, campus ministry is to travel around the country as a traveling evangelist. And so we do these sessions called Stump the Chump. And I'm the chump. That means students can come and ask any question of the chump, <laughs> me in this case, and my job is to try and offer a thoughtful reply. So let me give you just a little bit of a taste of what that is. So at McAllister College, uh, students would come and they would say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. Why should I get involved in this dumb church that's had so many problems in history? I don't want to be associated with that. Or I remember uh, at the University of Utah, students say, well, why Christianity? There's a lot of other religions out there. What about uh, uh, Mormonism? What about our Muslim friends? What about Hinduism? And so they would come and ask the chump that, and I'll respond to these here in a moment. Or at the University of Cincinnati, a guy that I met there, I'd heard of him before. He's uh, somewhat famous. Uh, his name is uh, Bart Campolo. 
Uh, Bart has a famous father who's a preacher named Tony Campolo. Unfortunately, in midlife, Bart actually left the faith and became a secular humanist. So our people at the University of Cincinnati set me up for a conversation with Bart. And one of his main objections is, can't we be good without God? In fact, can't we actually do church without God? A secular church. And that's what Bart is trying to start there. So his question then, or his objection to the chump, that's me, is can't we be good without God? And can't we do church actually without God? Uh, so, you know what, I had a great conversation, let me just say on the side here, I had a great conversation with Bart, and it really got me thinking, does the Holy Spirit surge through our church and empower our church, or is this just a social club? And I believe that we are a Holy Spirit animated body of Christ, and that just excites me here to be at Grace. Uh, another sampling, uh, Rice University down in Houston, Texas, uh, this last year, a student said to me, we're sitting in the student union, oh, what about the canon of scripture, the New Testament? Is it closed? Is it possible to add more books to the New Testament? Why is it closed off? What made them so smart back then to think that we could only have 27 books in the New Testament? So we had a really good conversation about that. And I guess I want to say in response in general, before I get to maybe some more specific responses, in general, a response comes from a person like me who comes from the church and does campus ministry. It comes from the authority of the church. That's where I speak. I don't really speak on my own authority. Or I don't speak because on the authority of the seminary that I went to necessarily here, Bethel Seminary. I speak ultimately in the authority of the church, and the authority of the church is found in the authority of Christ. Sometimes it's called apostolic authority. Apostolic means uh, of the apostles. So it was the apostles then who received Christ, who first met Christ and were shaped by Christ and given authority by Christ to set up the church. So let's go to our next scripture here and see how the apostles really did interact with the Messiah who came. 1 John 1, 1 through 3, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our, with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So notice how tactile this is. Notice the words here, heard, seen, touched. Uh, the life of Christ was made manifest. We have seen it. And then he says again in verse 3, we have seen it, we have heard it, we proclaim to you. So the, <laughs> this wasn't just a, uh, a spirit that came down. This is the concrete person, the concrete Messiah, the Son of God who came to earth. And what John is communicating here to his audience is that we saw the Lord Jesus and we touched him and we heard his teaching. He came among us. And this was a public revelation of God. This last year I had the uh, really great opportunity at Rice University to be on the stage with a leading Muslim spokesman. So it was a Islamic Christian dialogue. 
And one of the things that I said to him in private anyway, this didn't come out in the public dialogue in private, was that Christ is revealed to the world. Now, it's a particular place in the world, that being first century Palestine, and especially in uh, Jerusalem and Galilee. But Christ is revealed in public, and they found him in public. In Islam, God is revealed in, to one man in a cave. Or to my Mormon friends, and I hang out with good Mormons, I love them. But I guess I want to say, in Mormonism, God is revealed to one man in upper state New York. It's a secret revelation. But in Christianity, we have a public revelation. We received him, and we saw him, and we touched him. And I want to say to you that the Jews were actually surprised that the Messiah came in this form. This is not the warrior they were expecting. This is a suffering servant. This is not the prophet that they were expecting per se. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but he's more than that. He's the son of God. They never saw that one coming. <laughs> They never saw this coming, this idea of the weak, suffering servant who would serve us in and through his weakness, through the cross. And they never saw this idea of, well, there can't be a son of God. In Judaism, you have monotheism. You have Old Testament monotheism. They believe in one God. And so there can't be such a thing as a second God. There can't be a son of God. And that's why the doctrine of the Trinity developed later on. But just for now, they were surprised that this is the Son of God. What? This can't be. And so the early Jews who received Jesus, his first disciples, they had no incentive to invent a Son of God. They were as surprised as we are. The Romans, <laughs> the Romans opposed the idea of the Son of God because now there's another way to detract from Caesar worship and another way to detract from the approved Roman God. So you've got opposition from Rome and then you've got opposition from your fellow Jews because they thought they were monotheists and they thought there could not be a Son of God. So there's no incentive to invent this. This is not a fiction. The early followers of Jesus, they were like, what? They were surprised, and they wrote down what they saw, and they passed on this tradition to those who came after them. So we have an authority then by which we speak, and the authority gets back to Jesus, and the authority is handed off then to the apostles, and the authority then is given to the early church, and so on and so forth. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Well, part of the authority that's given then is the authority to decide what constitutes the word of God what the word of God really is. In other words, it's the authority for the canon. The canon means measurement. In this case, measurement means what is the New Testament? It took the early church uh, more than 300 years to come to a final conclusion about what the New Testament was going to be. So a famous early church figure, his name is Athanasius. He finally came out in 367. And he was a, a bishop, and he said, okay, we've been talking about this for 300 years. I think it's settled. And so on Easter Sunday of 367, he published the final list of the canon. Well, of the authority for that, where does it come? It comes from the apostles. Apostolic authority is what it's called. Apostolic authority, what that means is that it's the authority that Jesus gave to the apostles. So when they were trying to decide what books are going to go into the New Testament, uh, where do they get that information? How do they make that decision? Well, one of the main criteria 
was, well, of all the letters and books that are floating around the Mediterranean here and all those that are around Palestine and are up in Asia Minor and are in Italy and so forth, of all the things that are floating around, the ones that bear the mark of the apostles can be considered for the canon. Okay, so not just anyone can come in and write something inspirational and it ends up in the New Testament. No, not at all. If something was written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, then it was considered for inclusion in the New Testament. And finally, we did settle on the 27 books. So authority for deciding that. And then authority, the early church had authority for deciding right doctrine. Well, the way a lot of right doctrine was decided in the early church was because of challenges uh, to that doctrine. So you had challenges from the Gnostics who said, God can't become a man. You had challenge from the Montanists who said, well, God is just always revealing himself to everybody all the time. And the church said, no, that's not quite right. We ha do have the scriptures. Uh, you have challenge from the Arians, not the Arians as you're thinking of today, but if a man named Arius, who was a presbyter in Alexandria. Uh, and, he, and Arius said that uh, Christ isn't the son of God. He's created by God. Well, that set the church off in another 200 years of controversies. Well, where does the authority come uh, to decide on what right doctrine really is? It comes from the authority of the apostles, and that's what they always went back to. They always said, well, what do the apostles teach about this? That's how we're going to decide on our doctrine. So you have this whole tradition that develops out of the early church, and it's called the interpretive tradition. The interpretive tradition, I know I'm repeating myself here just a moment, but I think it's so important. The interpretive tradition is this. It starts with Christ and the authority of Christ as the Son of God. He knows because he invented the whole thing. And then that authority is passed on to the apostles. And the apostles then are given the authority to decide what right teaching is. And the early church, that's step one and step two. The early church then always looked back, well, what did the apostles teach about Jesus? Because we no longer have access to Jesus Directly, we have access to Jesus indirectly through the teaching of the apostles. So they're always referring back to the teaching of the apostles as they developed doctrine and as they developed scripture. So you can see where this is going. In a little while, I'm going to say to you, well, here's what I said uh, to those objections to Christianity. And here's what I say when we do stump the chump the sessions. Not because I'm so smart or I make this stuff up. But I, too, speak from the authority of this tradition. So let's see how this tradition developed a little bit. Our next scripture is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 and 4. And Paul, writing to the Corinthian church here, says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So already in the first century, this idea of tradition, of passing on right doctrine, passing on right practice, comes right through the Apostle Paul. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures are already being written. And plus he's referring to the prophecies in the Old Testament. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul is receiving uh, from the other apostles, from people in the early church, something that he's now writing down to the Corinthians, maybe 15 or 20 years later. And then he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, that this, he reminds them, that this was a public revelation of God. 
It says that he, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that is to Simon Peter, then to the 12, the 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Again, compare this to our Mormon friends and our Muslim friends, the direct appearance of the resurrected Christ to all these people, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, <laughs> and then last of all, as to one untimely born, uh, he appeared also to me, that being to Paul. So this interpretive tradition develops throughout the centuries. And let me just give you a concrete example of how this works out. Sitting at Hamlin University one day, just down the street over here where I worked for a few years, and a student, really sharp young man, uh, we got talking about doctrine and we got talking about uh, the Trinity. And he mentioned to me that he goes to a church that doesn't believe in the Trinity. Well, we had a really constructive conversation. This was not a negative debate. And so I'll just call him uh, James. That's not his real name. But I said, James, uh, so what's your basis for that? And he laid out some scripture. And then I said, well, you know, my tradition seems to see this thing a little bit differently. And so we went back and forth on some Bible verses for a little while. And then at some point, I kind of brought out my best trump card. And I said, well, the tradition of the early church already made this decision. They were the ones who were closest to the apostles. They were the ones who were developing this doctrine. And they had it out with Arius and other non-Trinitarians in the early church. And so I guess what you're saying is you disagree with their conclusions. And somehow you and your tradition and your church have more authority to decide this than the early church did. And I said, James, I guess I want to align myself with how the early church did its business and speak from there, rather than kind of being dangling out here uh, by yourself. Now, again, I want to emphasize this was not a negative conversation. He was very respectful, and I hope I was as well. Uh, and I hope I challenged James a little bit that day to consider aligning himself with this interpretive tradition. So the, I guess the moral of the story here is that whenever we're deciding about doctrine or apologetic issues, we always want to go back to scripture inside this interpretive tradition. We look back through the centuries to the early church and to Christ, to the apostles, in making our interpretations and our understanding of scripture. And so there's guardrails. And if you come to a position that's outside the guardrails, you're probably in trouble. Now, even within the guardrails, the church has often had debates and disagreements about things, and yet there's a limitation to what those things are. So where did we come from? Here at Grace Church, uh, we have our roots uh, in Europe. So the early church became the medieval church, which became the church of the Reformation as it spread out around the world. And then here in the U.S., there were the Great Awakenings. And the Great Awakenings uh, morphed into the fundamentalist tradition, fundamentalists against the liberals in the early 1900s. And then that uh, softened a bit into what we call the evangelical tradition in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And Grace Church was founded uh, out of the evangelical tradition. So we are roughly, I don't know, give or take 40 years old. And we, our founding pastor, 
who merged with another church. He and his people became Grace Church roughly 40 years ago. That was Galen Call. And actually, Pastor Call passed away recently. I was really sad to hear that. Uh, he and his family had an influence on our family and did so many good things in this church, and we honor his memory. So that's really too bad. And then Pastor Brian Myers came after that, and Pastor Jason Stonehouse uh, after that for 14 years, and there were interim pastors between that. And we have our own tradition. But folks, our tradition connects with the historic tradition that came before us. Let's never forget that. Before I close here, I just want to circle back onto some of the questions that students have asked. What about those McAllister students who say, hey, I'm spiritual but not religious. I believe in God, but I don't believe in the institutionalized church. I guess I want to say very gently, Christ loves the church. Do we love the church that Christ loved? There's really no such thing as being this loner Christian. We are meant to be in community, not just voluntary community. We are meant to be in the organic community, the body of Christ. We are part of it. That is a fact of our existence as Christians. Uh, what about the students at the University of Utah saying, what about all these other religions? And my response as I spoke from the authority of the church is that, well, God revealed himself through his son. And his son makes the exclusive claims to be the way, the truth, and the light uh, life. And as much as we respect other traditions and want to be in dialogue with other traditions, that doesn't mean we agree with them. And so uh, we don't believe in the exclusivity of the Christian faith because we're the smartest people in the room. I'm not. I get in a room with Muslims and Hindus and Jews and so forth, and I'm not. But I'm the amateur who believes Jesus and the claims that Jesus made through his miracles, through his death and resurrection to be the full and complete revelation of God. So what about other religions? Uh, other religions uh, have truth, but not the fullness that we find in Jesus. And then what about uh, Bart Campolo and the University of Cincinnati? What about the people who say, well, can't we just be good without God? What about all the people out there? who are doing good things and not doing them in the name of the church, not in the name of God. In fact, can't we have church without God? And I guess I want to say back to that, well, if Jesus is true, and if the church belongs to Jesus, then we should belong to the church. And secondly, which would I rather do, out there working in my own power or working in the power of the Holy Spirit, the creator of the universe? That's an easy answer for me, an easy choice for me. And that's what I said back uh, to that question. And then the person, young woman, student center, Rice University, who said, well, why was the canon closed? Why do we only have 27 books in the New Testament? Couldn't another one be added as the times are changed? And I guess the response to that is that the early church was in position to make these decisions in a way that we're not. So the early church decided that it was going to be these 27 books in the New Testament that get us back to apostolic teaching. And they were close to the action, whereas 2,000 years later, we are not. So yes, the canon is closed and can't be opened. So Grace Church, what do we do with this? <clears throat> well, let me suggest three things. Uh, the first one is to be the church. Be the church. In other words, be, stand in the line of historic Christianity, 
uh, stand in the line of the Reformation and the medieval church and the early church and the apostolic church. That's where we belong. This goes all the way back to the book of Acts. And that's who we are. And so we are the body of Christ. And there's no such thing as these uh, lone ranger Christians kind of floating out there by themselves, kind of just, oh, I just read my Bible and I believe in God and I'm doing my own thing. No, it's not just that we're built for community. We are called into community. And we're called into the community that God has given to us. And for those of us who are here at Grace, uh, that's what we do. And we are faithful to it, right? We come every week. We serve. We give of our time and our finances. And we stick with it. Secondly, we speak from the church. And that's what I've been talking about quite a bit uh, in this message. That I speak from the authority of the church, which is derived from the authority of the apostles, which is derived and given from the authority of Jesus. So we can speak truth into the hard questions, the apologetic questions, the objections and so forth that not only college students have, but your friends and neighbors, they've got these questions as well. And we can speak from the authority of the church, but also we can speak into society and all of the questions and the issues and the difficulties in our culture right now around uh, race and around politics and money and the economy and so forth. We can speak into those issues with the authority of Christ the authority of the church. So be the church, speak from the church, and thirdly, I'm repeating myself now, <laughs> love the church. Love the church because Christ loves the church. And folks, stay here. Don't opt out. I wonder how many times Sharon and I have had the conversation, oh, should we leave the church? Well, we wouldn't consider that, but should we leave this church? Should we go down the street? Now, sometimes there's good reasons to do that. I don't want to criticize people too much, but we tend to stick around through thick and thin because, <laughs> well, the church down the street has probably got the same five problems or something similar that we do here because we are an imperfect church. But I guess Sharon and I want to stay here and not just opt out and abandon the church. We want to reform the church. So when the church has issues and problems, which we always do, it's just life in the big city, I guess, when you're in a place that's comprised of sinners trying to become saints with the power of God, there's always going to be issues. And we have decided, I could preach a whole thing about this. We have decided that we're staying and work it out. We want to be part of the solution here. And I hope you'll join Sharon in me in that. And then really, we can be proud. I know people are halfway ashamed to talk about, oh, I go to church. Oh, I'm part of a church. I'm never like that. When I'm out on the golf course with my buddies or new people or I'm on college campus, I am proud to talk about the church and acknowledge the problems in the church, sure, whether it's historic problems or problems of today. But secondly, more importantly, talk about the good things that the church has done in history that I mentioned earlier, such as health care and science and education and so forth. And then talk about the good things that our churches are doing today in solving some of the social ills that we have. So folks, Grace Church, I'm proud to be here. And I hope you are as well. So uh, let's hang out for the next uh, foreseeable future, okay? And then we'll be hanging out someday in eternity as well with the Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs>